Good morning. It's good to be back in this class. I appreciate y'all coming. We've got good attendance today, and that's always very nice. There are seats for people who are coming in, but uh, they're going to have to look for them. It's not that easy to find right now. Uh, I'm excited also about next week. Uh, Next week, I'm going to be covering a subject that a number of you have been asking me to cover for seven years. And uh, so I hope you'll, you'll be back next week when we talk about predestination. So it's one of those kind of fun little things that cause a lot of uh, interest, maybe. Today, we're not there yet, though. Today, we are on Paul's metaphors for salvation. Our last Sunday to spend on this, we're dealing with propitiation today. And as I was getting ready to write the lesson, I was thinking about how many people it takes to make this class go. There are so many of you, whether you're part of the curtain ministry, whether you're part of just passing the books from one side to the other, whether you're helping set up, there are so many volunteers in this class that it's the main reason we have good attendance. Basically, all of you volunteer, so you have to be here each Sunday. It was a strategic move we made and one that I'm glad we did. No, um, uh, I I do want to say that I don't get to mention everybody by name. Uh, One of the ones that came to mind this week is Mike Hudgens, who's one of our many volunteers. Mike, oh, he has a head there. (laughs) Mike is uh, uh, the gentleman who runs the sound. Uh, Mike has uh, uh, multiple full-time jobs, really. Uh, He's got his real day job, but Mike also spends his spare time umpiring baseball games. And by umpiring games, I don't mean just you know, kids pitch little uh, underhanded kindergarten. So I'm talking legitimate big-time baseball. And I've had a chance to go to games with Mike. It's fascinating to go to games because he's a true baseball fan. He understands the game. He's able to sit there and say, hey, this time the pitcher's going to throw a fastball low and inside. Or he's able to say, watch for the curveball. And, 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 he, he look, the batter's going to try and pull it to that le- hole over in left field or whatever it may be. He's fun to go to the ball games with. One of the things about baseball that if you're talking to Mike, he might be able to explain to you if you're not a big baseball fan is the concept of a sacrifice. A sacrifice in baseball is when the batter is there and the batter gets uh, uh, connects with the ball, but once the batter hits the ball, he, he, the batter himself makes an out but the batter makes that out knowing he can advance a runner somewhere along the baselines so the batter is viewed to have made a sacrifice he made an out for himself or herself and in return was able to see that another runner advanced on the basis I don't know why that came to my mind as I was trying to write this lesson but it did Because we're talking, I guess, about a sacrifice, but not on the level of a baseball game. We're talking about the only sacrifice that truly matters in this world. We're talking about the ultimate sacrifice. And it's one of the terms that we have as we look at salvation. We started the salvation terms looking at Paul's word for justified out of the court system. Then we looked at Paul's word for reconciled, which is a word out of relationships, making relationships right. We looked at Paul's word of adoption, out of family, the idea of adding to the family. We looked at his word reckoned, which was a 
banking word or a, a word of commerce and trade. We looked at his word redeemed, which was a word that came out of the slavery market and uh, 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 the, the, the hierarchy of the economic system at the time. This week we're looking at propitiation. Propitiation. And it comes out of the sacrifice or religious system. See, Paul used metaphors from all these different areas of life. So if we put propitiation, which we're going to study this week, under the microscope, the first thing we need to do is all of us need to learn the word. We need to learn the word. How many of you have used that word in your conversation already today? (laughs) This week? This month? 2009. Not a common word, is it? Let's pronounce it. It's propitiation. Propitiation. Okay? Now, we're going to study that word. It's not common in our vocabulary. It's not common in the Bible either. In the New Testament, it's used twice. Paul uses it once. The writer of Hebrews uses it once. Propitiation. It's our word for the day. It's what we're going to study. And we're going to do it in a three-step process. The first step is we're going to be detectives. The first step is we're going to chase down that word. It's an unusual word, but we're going to track it. We're going to track it all the way back to Paul and beyond. So we understand exactly what the word is. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to consider how Paul used the word. What, what did Paul mean? Why was Paul picking this word propitiation? And then the third thing that we'll do is apply it in our points for home and go eat lunch. First step today, let's chase down the word. Let's do detective work and let's figure out where this propitiation word comes from. Propitiation as a word we find in a passage in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And we'll put that on the screen and we'll look at it together. Romans 3, verse 25. I hope that's big enough for you all to be able to see it. Um, we, We can start back up with verse 23 where Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of you have sinned and fallen short of God's glory? Oh, that's all of you. And are justified, that was the word we looked at first, declared not guilty, declared not guilty by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption, that's the buying back from slavery, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There we have the word, propitiation, by his blood to be received by faith. So we've got that passage. If you're reading from the English Standard Version, which is the version I'm reading from here, you've got the passage. Propitiation, what is it that's meant? Well, first thing we can do is grab our volume of Oxford's English Dictionary. This is volume two. It's the shorter set. You can buy the $15 set, but I mean 15 volume set. It's like, not $15. 15 volume set, but you cannot lug it into church. 
So instead, for church purposes, we just took volume two, the shorter volume. And we can look in volume two of Oxford's English Dictionary and find the word propitiation. Let's do it. I want to keep this handy. Remember what it is. Paul says, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation. Ah, here it is. Propitiation. They don't tell you how to pronounce it as cleverly as we did in here. But we know it's, they do it propitiation instead of propitiation, but that's because they're from England. Um, origin, it's late ecclesiastical from the Latin propitiatio, formed as propitiate, blah, 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 get down to definition number one. The act or an action of propitiating, well, that does us absolutely no good. <laughs> Oh, now I understand propitiation. That's the act of propitiating. I wish Paul had just said so. Appeasement. Appeasement. Now we know that. We do that in politics. Remember how upset history has been with Chamberlain from England for appeasing Germany? Trying to get along with that messy guy, Hitler. Appeasement. Conciliation. Well, we know conciliation because it's part of reconciliation. Reconciliation or reconciliation is when you conciliate again. But conciliation means to please. Atonement. Expiation. Hmm. Let's leave those alone for a minute. Propitiation. The action or an act of propitiating. Well, let's go to propitiate. That might help us. Propitiate. Here it is. Same page. Latin stem, propitiare. To make propitious. <laughs> you realize people get paid for writing this. By us who buy it. To make propitious or favorably inclined. I like that. I understand that. I like juries to be favorably inclined toward my clients. I understand. I like judges to be propitious. I may use the word now. Your Honor, at the risk of urging you to be propitious... I'd probably get thrown in jail because the judge wouldn't understand it. Make propitious or favorably inclined, appease, conciliate, placate. Ah, I'm getting better. But if we're going to be good detectives, and we know propitiation is to propitiate, and propitiate is to make propitious, whoops, now we go to propitious just to chase this thing down. Propitious, there it is. Well disposed, favorably inclined. Ah, good, voting well. Favorable, timely, opportune. So propitiation basically means to make God favorably inclined. To appease God. 
That seems to be what this word is. Now, let's go back to the PowerPoint for a minute and get caught up. We've looked then at the passage out of Romans. We've chased it down out of Oxford's dictionary, and here's what we've discovered. Our word propitiation comes from a Latin word, propitiare is the verb form. If you were looking it up, you'd look it up as my grandmother is here, and she's a Latin scholar, so I have to be very careful. Propitio, propitiare is the Latin form you would have memorized, or that I did when I took Latin, and that's the way we look it up in the Latin dictionary. Our English word, propitiation, stay with me, we're doing detective work. Our English word in our Bible comes from the Latin word. So the right thing we should do now is be good Latin scholars. And let's go to Cassell's Latin Dictionary. Right here. Happen to have made a Xerox of Propitio for you so that we can look at it. Let's consider what the Latin is. The Latin word, Propitio. There it is. Propitio. Propitiare means to soothe, to propitiate, <laughs> to appease. You could read Latin books where people propitio Caesar. They give him something to make him happy. Where people propitio the gods. They bring Zeus something, or Jupiter, I guess, would have been the Latin name for Zeus. They bring Jupiter something to keep him on their good side. Make sense? Now, somewhere in here, I want you to start feeling a little discomforted. Like, is God so moody that he needs something to make him happy? That's been a perplexing problem with people who've looked at this passage before, as you'll see as we go through it. Well, we know the Latin propitio, but Paul didn't write in Latin. So why are our English translators using some Latin word that means to soothe when they're translating the Bible? I can tell you why. For over a thousand years... Do you know what the church used? For over a thousand years, the church used the Latin Bible. The Vulgate. I'll put it on the overhead. For a thousand years, this is a translation that was done by Jerome and others in the 400s. This was what the church used and considered as holy as the Greek thinking that God had been behind the translation, much like many of our forefathers thought God was behind the King James. And so, if you look in the Vulgate, and you read Romans chapter 3, verse 25, you see, here is, you can see up at the top, this is, Ad means two in Latin. Romanos, those are the Romans. Okay? I bet you already knew that, didn't you? 
So we get down to verse 25. Quem, who, propose to it, if you propose something, you put it out there, right? Whom God set forward or put out, God being Deus, whom God put out. That's why Anno Deus, the year of our God, our Lord. Whom the Lord put forward, propitiotionem. Oops, ignore that last little bit of the word because the main part we want to focus on is that shows us what the word is, is the propitiatio there. Propitiatio. The reason our English people are sticking propitiation on there, which is causing our eyes to glaze over when we read the Bible, is because Jerome used it when he translated the Latin in 400 A.D. Nothing personal, Jerome. But, I'd like to go back to what Paul wrote. Paul wrote, this is not an original. <laughs> I found him. <laughs> you should see, his, he had terrible handwriting. Uh, no, Paul wrote Greek. It was Greek that was being translated by Jerome into Latin. So we can set propitio aside, propitiare, and we can pursue propitiation, but let's go back to the Greek and figure out what word is really there. Fair enough? Because when Paul's writing, he doesn't write propitiation from the English. He doesn't write propitiare from the Latin. He doesn't write either of those. He writes pilasterion from the Greek. We'll put it into English letters. It might buy, be a little bit easier. But if we look at the Greek, the word that Paul is using, uh, let's stay consistent. I'll use my copy here. The word that Paul is using in his letter to the Romans. See, that's in Greek. Does anyone have a pen? I need a pen. Thank you. Um, these are, are capital letters. They're a little hard to read, but it's P-R-O-S, pros, that's two, the Romanos, to the Romans. Okay, to the Romans. Paul writes in chapter 3, we're going to focus in here on verse 25, and Paul talks about, Paul says, who God proetheto put forward, and here's God, Theos, God put forward, and then here's our word, hilasterion. Hilasterion. That's the I. You see the I? So look here, let's really, let's become Greek scholars if we're going to do this. Let's do it right. Greek doesn't have an H. That's why in H in our language, even sometimes you don't pronounce it. Is it herb or herb? If you're picking it out of the garden. If you meet them on the street, it's probably herb. But if you're picking them out of the garden, some people it's herb. Right? And if a word starts with A, I mean with H, you don't say a uh, herb. You say un, A-N. Because you use N if there's not a consonant following. Okay, you may have totally lost this. If so, it doesn't matter. The point is... 
Our language originally didn't have an H. What the Greeks had is that little mark above the I that looks like that. And that means make a huh sound when you say the word. So hill, H-I-L, L, that's an L. I'm starting to write Greek, sorry. That's, so that's H-I-L-A, you recognize the A, S, T, that T is there. That goofy looking N with a tail is a long E. So hilasterion, that's our word. That's the word Paul uses. Hilasterion. Hilasterion. There. Now, how did they get propitiation out of Hilasterion? What was Jerome thinking? Where does this word come from? When will this part of the lesson end so that we can get to the meaning? We got to go just a little bit further. Hang on with me because Hilasterion is used only twice in the New Testament. But it's used 27 times when the, Greeks trans- when the Jews translated their scripture into Greek. The Septuagint. 27 times the Septuagint uses that word. And in at least 22 of them, it always means the exact same thing. Are you ready? I should have the song, I don't. Dun, 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 dun. Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? The word that's translated propitiation, hilasterion, it's actually used to talk about part of the Ark of the Covenant. The lid. It's the lid on the ark. The Hebrew word ark sounds very biblical. Sounds really cool. You know what it means? Chest. It's like a storage chest. But it just doesn't sound holy to talk about the storage chest of the covenant. So instead, it's in English, the ark of the covenant. But the ark was just the storage chest that had the Ten Commandments and the covenant of the laws that Moses wrote up in it. Along with a jar of manna and Aaron's staff. But it was mainly built to hold the covenant that God gave to the people. So it's the carrying chest for the covenant, the law. And it had a lid. And if we were to look in the Septuagint, if we were to look in the, the Greek Old Testament we would find a passage that says, here, let's do this. Let's, just for grand, since you're all Greek scholars now, we're going to put up Exodus in the Greek Old Testament. I'm going to fold this over so that you can see verse 17. You see this is uh, verse 17. See where it starts, 17? We'll do this in a different color so that we can contrast the two. But in verse 17, we read, And you are to make a hilasterion. See that? Oops. There you go. You are to make a hilasterion. See it? Look it. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to do this. You can be matchers. (laughs) Paul? Hilasterion. 
Greek Old Testament, Hildasterion. It's the same thing, isn't it? Same thing. The Hildasterion. So what, what, what is that? What does verse 17 really say? Well, let's put it in English because we'll read it a little bit better that way. But verse 17 in English says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. That word mercy seat, that's hilasterion. That's what eventually gets translated propitiation. We've done our detective work. Now all we need to do is understand the Ark of the Covenant. Here's a nice little picture that was in our Bible that I used this, uh, to make this copy out of. And, and the Hilasterion, this is the chest. This is what has the law in it. Okay? This lid right here, this is the Hilasterion. This is the, the, the covering. The chest itself was made out of acacia wood, which is a wood that's a hardwood they still use in the Middle East to make cabinets out of. Um, uh, uh, you can buy in the United States, you can buy it sometimes as a salt container because it's impervious to water, relatively. And so they'll store salt in it. But it's a real hardwood. And, and the chest was made out of that and overlaid with gold. But the lid was pure gold wasn't overlaid with wood. It was of greater value than the chest. The chest held the law. The lid was of pure gold. Because the lid was of extreme importance. When God told Moses how to make it, he said, you'll make a mercy seat of pure gold. And he gives them the dimensions and he tells them to make the angels on the lid and then he says down at the end, I will meet with you. And from above there, whoops, you're missing verse 22. There, at the mercy seat, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, those are the angels, that are on the ark of the testimony, he says, I'll speak with you. God will meet at the mercy seat. God will meet at the mercy seat. Now, where does this lead us? Well, if we turn to Leviticus chapter 16, how many of you have friends who are practicing Jews? You will not find them at work on the Day of Atonement generally. That's a very holy holiday in the Jewish, in the Jewish calendar. The Day of Atonement is set out in Leviticus chapter 16. And, and under the Old Covenant, as the Day of Atonement was set up, every year the sins of the people were to be atoned for. And the way it would happen is the high priest would sacrifice ultimately seven animals. But he would take the blood of the first animal, go into the Holy of Holies, where he's only allowed to go once a year where the Ark of the Covenant is kept and where the mercy seat is. And he would take the blood and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. First, to forgive himself so that he can approach God. And then second, symbolically, to forgive the sins of the people. Because the sacrifice had been made, 
The blood had been shed, and the blood is to go on the mercy seat because somewhere the people who live under the law and under in the chest will meet with God only upon a seat of mercy that's been sprinkled with a blood sacrifice. Do you get that picture? Have we done our work well enough that we know where this word comes from and what the word is? Can we then move to step two? Step two. Let's look at Paul's usage. If we go back to the scripture that started this, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, as a mercy seat, as a lid over the law, as a place where God would meet us sinners under the law. Yet by God's mercy and the blood of Christ atoned, righteous, above the law. God put Christ forward. The picture image here is as the sacrifice. Now why does Jerome, why do the people get off calling it propitiation? We've got to make the full circle because I'm not throwing rocks at that translation. It just leaves us missing the data. Let me explain to you what I mean. It's interesting to me to read anthropologists and social scientists who talk about why people sacrificed in early cultures. Because David was talking about the Mayan calendar this morning. The Mayans sacrificed. The neighbors of Israel sacrificed. The Native Americans sacrificed. People, the Aborigines sacrificed. People in different cultures throughout the history of humanity have sacrificed. Why? You can categorize, I think fairly, the reasons for sacrificing into two different areas. One group sacrificed because man as a creature perceives the fact that he is a creature and there is a God. And so man brings that God a sacrifice. Dale suggested I show a clip from Joe and the Volcano. I didn't do it. Sorry, Tom Hanks. But the idea is that there is God and we are humanity, man and woman, and so we sacrifice out of recognition. And those can be divided up in a number of different ways. I've pulled two of them out for examples to us today. One, um, ah, second reason, man is a sinner. We'll get to that in a minute. Some sacrificed to show dependence on God. In other words, we can't control the weather. We want a good crop. Grab a virgin and kill her for God to give us good weather. We've had a drought. 
We need some rain. Get the last bit of corn we've got and let's burn it up as a sacrifice to gods so that they will give us rain and more. Sometimes man as a creature has understood there is a greater being that has greater control and so man as a creature sacrifices to acknowledge the greater being in hopes the greater being will reciprocate and behave like a greater being should. A second reason. A bribe. Oh, they may not use that word, but basically it's cutting a deal with God. I'll give you this as a sacrifice in anticipation of you giving me that. We will slay one of our children in return for you giving us prosperity. Now, lest you think this is too outlandish, turn on some Christian TV shows. Oh, if you'll just give God 10% through me, he'll give you a new car. Cut that deal now. It's a pretty primitive, non-biblical. Don't get me wrong. When you acknowledge God and his system, he takes care of your needs. But it ain't a 10% gets you a 100% refund. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's not a bribe. It's not a deal. Sacrificing, just acknowledging that there's a God and we are a creature, is not what the Day of Atonement was about. The Jews had a very different sacrificial system. Their sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, was out of man is a sinner and has true moral guilt. There's something truly wrong with me. I do not live up to the rules or the conduct or the love, the compassion. I don't live up to the merit of God. I mess up. I sin. Oh, I'm happy to be standing here teaching you today, if God can use me to do that. But i got to tell you, this week... I had sin in my life. I'm not up here because I'm perfect. And anybody who is standing before you teaching because they're perfect is either lying or the Lord has returned and we missed the way he was really coming back. We're all sinners. Oh, we may not be doing the big ones. I didn't kill anybody this week. But remember... The Lord said, if you hate someone, you've killed them in your heart. I came real close to killing a guy Tuesday. <laughs> Not quite sure it rose to the level of hate, but it was getting pretty close. It's close enough to where I don't think I was holy in the way I treated him. I got sent an email of a link of me yelling at uh, Phil Jackson. I decided that email doesn't make me look very Christian. But I wasn't yelling anything bad. But I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. 
I have true moral guilt before God. I cannot stand before God. And I'll tell you what, Isaiah couldn't either. In our worship service this morning, remember, was it Matt Saines who was standing there? Who was quoting from Isaiah 6? And you go back and Isaiah sees the Lord in his temple. And he falls down. And he's not worthy. And, and, and the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and, and Isaiah just falls flat before the Lord. Can't get up, can't talk, can't do anything until God has one of the angels go get a coal from the altar, from the sacrifice, and bring it over and touch him. He's got to have the sacrifice of God before he's got any right talking to the Lord. Because he has true moral guilt. Well, Paul's view of sacrifice is on man as a sinner. Man is under the wrath of God. Paul says the propitiation, the blood of Christ. When you read about the blood of Christ, Paul's not talking about it simply from the perspective of communal wine. Blood is not merely from the perspective of a shed life. Paul speaks of the blood of Christ referencing a sacrifice, a true sacrifice as in the blood is shed in a sacrificial system. We're so far removed from that in our culture that we read over the blood and we just translate it like, oh, Christ gave his life. And don't realize when Paul speaks of the blood of Christ, he's talking about a physical sacrifice that was made where the blood was actually shed on an altar of sorts for our sin. So while Paul uses the word propitiation once, you can see Paul talking about sacrificing every time he speaks of the blood of Christ. When Paul writes in Romans 5, 9, since we've been justified by his blood. In other words, since there's a sacrifice that's been laid on the altar for our sin, since God has truly provided a seat of mercy that rises above the law, So that we're not justified by the law carried in the gold-covered wood box. We're meeting God on the valuable seat of pure gold, which is sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, who actually is the meeting place. He's not only the sacrifice, the blood that's on the mercy seat, He's the mercy seat itself. He is what exists between God Almighty and man under the law. He's the covering where God meets with us. We're there by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, we're saved. It's justified. We're declared righteous by a sacrifice, a physical death pouring out on the altar of his blood. Look at Ephesians 1.7. Paul said, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. We have redemption. We have been bought back. The price has been paid to redeem us from slavery through a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice of Jesus. Look at Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Paul writes, In Him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. The peace that we have before God comes through a physical sacrifice of Jesus. Now, the Bible translators have had fits with this. And if you have compared what we've been reading out of the 
English Standard Version, I must warn you, if you read from a Revised Standard Version, not the new Revised, the old Revised Standard Version that came out in like 52. If you read from the old Revised Standard Version, they've changed the word. They don't have the word propitiation there. They took it upon themselves to change it and make it the word expiation. Let me show you the RSV. The RSV takes Romans 3.25 and says that God put forward Jesus as an expiation instead of propitiation. Oh, it caused a big ruckus in the scholastic community. It really did. The reason why it did is because those two words mean a different focus. Let's see if I can explain it. Here's God. Hmm. And here's man. And man has true guilt. And God is truly righteous. And they need to meet. And what expiation means is man's guilt is forgiven. Man's sin is expiated. Man's guilt is forgiven. What propitiation means is God is satisfied. His wrath is soothed. His just righteous requirement that says God condemns sin has been placated. It's been made whole. It's been okay. Propitiation talks about the effect of the sacrifice on God. Expiation talks about the effect on man. The mercy seat above the, the law, the mercy seat above the, the ark, the chest, the lid is talking about propitiating, soothing. God sees the blood. God sees the sacrifice and God is able to look past the sin. This does not mean God's temperamental. We're using human words to describe non-human God. But those are the only words we have. None of us have words beyond human words. So we speak of soothing God's wrath. When I think the context of Scripture is God properly it will destroy all sin. And when our sin is forgiven by the blood of Christ, it not only from a human perspective forgives our sin, but it takes care of the problem that God has of receiving us as sinners because His justice is also uh, met, resolved. It's not just our sins are forgiven, it's His justice allows Him to hold us eternally because the penalty has been paid. Christ had to die not only to forgive us of our sins, but also so that God could be righteous and just in the process. It's the idea, well, he's God. Why can't he just forgive our sins? Why does Christ have to die? Because God is who he is. He's not changing. And his righteousness says sin, evil, corruption, it's a cancer that must be destroyed and put to death. And so it's done, but it's done in Christ, not in us. 
And praise God, we are expiated, we are made clean, we are without sin, but the sin wasn't just disappeared. It didn't, it wasn't just erased. It was transferred and destroyed. This is not, God doesn't take care, this was not an eraser. God didn't say, hmm, get me the liquid paper. Ooh, that's gone. God said, I'll send Jesus as the mercy seat. He'll be the sacrifice. He'll be the blood shed on the altar. And the sin is not erased, it's transferred. And the judgment is not disappearing, it's transferred. And at the mercy seat, at the lid of the covenant, as prophesied indeed, thousand plus years before Christ, at that place, the transfer has taken place. There's a reason before the, the, the priest, if, 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 you were bring, if you were a Jew and you brought your, your, your sacrifice to the altar for your sins, do you know what you had to do before the priest killed it? You had to put your hands on it. To show that it's leaving you and it's taking your place. This has never been about God just erases our sin. He can't do that and be God. This is about our sin has to be paid for by blood. And God took our place. He substituted His Son. How great a salvation is this? And we wonder why Paul breaks into spontaneous praise when he starts writing about it. The verse of a song that means the world to me is the, the name of the song is an old hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And I've reproduced it in your, your sheet. But the second verse of that song, I take, O cross, thy shadow as my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face, content to let the world go by. To know no gain nor loss, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory all the cross. There's a passage in there where he says, O trysting place, meeting place, where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. That's what the cross is. Homework, go do new creation on your own. I gave you the verses. Next week, it's Memorial Day weekend. I figure we get half attendance. It's the week we're rolling out predestination. And we're doing it in one week. So be there or be square. Homework. I mean, points for home. Whoever believes in the Son. This is at the end of John 3. The same John 3 that has, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Ends. Last verse in the chapter says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on God's wrath doesn't come on you because you're a sinner. It's already on you. The question is, do you get it off of you? By transferring it to Christ, yes. Wrath, not in a sense of he's very edgy and ticked off at what you've done. Wrath in the sense that sin is very serious and must be destroyed. So Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. Where do you get your peace from? If it's from cutting a deal with God, then you look at sacrifice the wrong way. If it's from ignoring God, then you're looking at sacrifice the wrong way. 
My peace exists not because I'm whole and not because I'm perfect, not because he loves me more than he loves someone else. My peace exists not because of what I'm doing or what I have done or what I haven't done. My peace exists because my sin has been transferred to Jesus. And I'm not guilty. And Jesus has paid the price. And God is still God. But I'm on his side of the mercy seat in Christ. I'm not under the law. And so in him I have redemption through his blood. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. God forgives us freely, but it costs him an incredible price. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you very much for the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. That allows us to pray to you in Jesus' name. Through his work. Through his blood. And I just stop and say thank you. Through him. Amen.